Hello everyone, and welcome to the Russian Empire History Podcast. I'm your host, J.P. Bristow. This is Season 1, The Forest, The Steppe, and The Birth of the Russian Empire. Episode 3, Into the Korgans. Last episode, we looked at the Proto-Indo-European people through the lens of paleolinguistic reconstructions of their language and how those reconstructed words may provide clues to locate their homeland and describe their lives and culture. In this episode, we will begin a look at the fascinating archaeology of the steppes, centred especially around various kinds of burial rituals, and see how these discoveries, many of them quite recent from the last few decades, still ongoing, support those linguistically derived theories. In 1896, Nikolai Veselovsky, a Russian Orientalist and archaeologist who had already unearthed a couple of Scythian tombs in Central Asia, led the excavation of a Korgan near Maikop, now capital of the Republic of Adygea in southern Russia. A Korgan is a mound of earth raised over some type of grave, sometimes of a single person, sometimes several. The simplest are simply dirt and turf, but others can contain stone and timber reinforcement. The Mykop Korgan, which was known locally as Orshad, was ten and a half metres, that's about 30 feet high, and around 100 metres or 300 feet across. In the middle of the mound, there was a pit lined with stone containing the remains of a man with a bronze spearhead, a silver spiral chest piece, and a sprinkling of ochre. The pit was just over 5 metres long, 3.7 metres wide, and 1.4 metres deep. It was rectangular, with rounded corners. There were the remains of wood facing and four thick posts set into the corners. Wooden dividers split the pit into three unequal parts. The pit was sealed with timber and then covered in earth. The main burial appeared to be a person of some importance. The skeleton lay with its head to the south, on its right side, with its hands raised to its face. It was covered in ochre. The skeleton was covered above and below with stamped lamella gold jewellery depicting lions, bulls and five-petal rosettes and 38 rings which had all been sewn into his clothing. Gold, cornelian and lapis lazuli beads were lying all around. A gold diadem and earrings lay by the head. On his right lay eight silver and gold tubes topped with bulls. Veselovsky thought they were probably scepters or some other symbol of authority. Nearby were 17 gold and silver vessels, arrowheads, axes, a chisel, knife and an awl. The smaller eastern and western chambers held female skeletons in the same pose with heavy gold rings and beads. 
The eastern chamber also contained copper plates and cups, a bucket and jar, while the western chamber contained ceramics. The plates and jars were decorated with various scenes, mountain landscapes, bears, bulls, horses, lions, leopards, and sheep. Thin silver strips with silver nails lay all over the floor of the pit throughout the three chambers. Veselovsky knew this gorgon was different, and much older than the Scythian sites he had investigated. The culture it represented would be named the Mycop culture in its honour. The dig gave rise to a number of mysteries, some of which remain open questions today. Where did all the metal come from? One of the plates is believed to show a view of Mount Elbrus, the tallest mountain in the Caucasus, which supposedly demonstrates a local origin. But the other images and items look like those found in northern Mesopotamia, Troy, or Egypt. What's known as the Mycop animal style has never been found anywhere else in the Caucasus. The Mycop appeared to live in short-term settlements where there was no trace of metal production. The artifacts from the Corgan are now in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. Although the Mycop culture seems not to have been extensive, some of the pieces found in the Corgan remain unique, with nothing similar found elsewhere. The grave, which was dated to the 5th millennium BCE, kicks off an interest in what had been in the steppe before the Scythians, and stimulated the excavation of Corgans across the Russian Empire and its successor states. As we saw last episode, linguists investigating the Proto-Indo-European vocabulary drew conclusions about where they had lived based on the words that they have been able to reconstruct. German philologist Otto Schrader, in particular, put the homeland in the Pontic steppe on the basis that there was a word for horse, which is native to the steppe, but not for donkey, descended from the African wild ass, or camel from the Arabian Peninsula. Combined with the discoveries in Kurgan excavations, this led Lithuanian archaeologist and anthropologist Maria Gimbutas to her Corgan hypothesis in 1956. So what is a Corgan? At its simplest, a Corgan is just a mound of earth over some kind of grave. Similar kinds of graves can be found in other areas, like barrows and Viking ship burials. But Corgan is used to refer to the burial mounds found in considerable numbers across the Great European Plain and Steppe, from Eastern Europe through to Mongolia. They usually contain one body, various items such as tools, vessels and weapons, and frequently horses. The oldest date to the 5th millennium BCE, and they continued to be made by Eurasian nomads until quite recently. After the Battle of Stalingrad, more than 35,000 of the city's defenders were interred in the Mamayev Kurgan, which forms the centerpiece of the memorial complex in what is now called Volgograd, and is topped by the enormous statue 
the motherland calls. The Korgan building cultures are differentiated by their style of grave and the items found in the grave. There are stone-lined graves, timber-lined graves, and as successive waves of migration come across the steppe, we have Scythian, Sarmatian, Hunnic, and Turkic Korgans. Some of these Korgans are huge. The Mamai Gara Korgan on the Dnieper in southern Ukraine is 80 meters, that's 262 feet tall. Some sites are individual. At others, the archaeological evidence shows that people returned every few decades to build a new Korgan. As the Stone Age and Bronze Age peoples of the steppe were nomads without a writing system, the Korgans are the key archaeological source material across a huge swathe of territory from Poland, Romania and Bulgaria, across Ukraine and Russia, and east to Kazakhstan and Mongolia. At least 50,000 Korgans have been mapped in this territory. So let's return to Maria Gimbutas. Gimbutas was born in 1921 in the Central Republic of Lithuania, a Polish puppet state with an extremely brief history. She was one of those people who was pushed from place to place by the years of revolutions, wars, independence movements, occupation and reoccupation, eventually ending up in the United States, where she had a successful career at Harvard and UCLA. She began her academic career studying ethnography, archaeology, linguistics, folklore and literature, writing her master's dissertation on Iron Age burials in Lithuania and her doctorate on prehistoric burial sites in Lithuania. In the United States, she started out translating Eastern European documents on archaeology before becoming a lecturer in the Department of Anthropology. As I mentioned earlier, Indo-European scholars had already proposed steppe nomads as the original Proto-Indo-Europeans, although a Northern European origin was prevailing. Gimbutas combined her background in linguistics with her ability to access the increasing wealth of archaeological evidence in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And in 1956, she published The Prehistory of Eastern Europe, Part 1, in which she defined and introduced the terms Korgan culture and the Korgan hypothesis. The hypothesis posited that four phases of development had seen Korgan culture evolve from localized cultures in the 5th and 6th millennium BCE, including the Mycop culture we began this episode with, through domestication of the horse and the invention of chariots, into a single Yamnaya or pit grave culture covering the entire steppe in the 3rd millennium BCE which then finally expanded into Western Europe, Central Asia, and Northern India, bringing the Indo-European language family with it. Although there remain some areas of controversy, genetic studies since the 1990s have confirmed that there was a substantial invasive migration out of the Pontic steppe in approximately this time frame. 
Excavation of Corgans is still ongoing, with new finds continuing to expand and deepen our understanding of step developments, leading to revised versions of the Corgan hypothesis. In 2007, David Anthony, an American anthropologist who studies Indo-European migrations and has particularly researched the domestication of the horse, published The Horse, the Wheel and Language, How Bronze Age Riders from the Eurasian Steppes Shaped the Modern World. This work refines the Corgan hypothesis and puts forward the Yamnaya culture as the key culture that spread Proto-Indo-European as a result of the new social organization and way of life that they developed as an adaptation to climate change in the region. Between 3500 and 3000 BCE, the steppes became drier and cooler, which meant the herds needed to be moved further and more frequently in order to find sufficient food. Horseback riding enabled people to range further more easily. Settlements began to be abandoned, and permanent villages were abandoned from the Don to the Urals. Instead, people began to travel the steppe as a way of life. Living in covered wagons and moving between summer and winter ranges. Horseback riding and wagon based living meant that the Yamnaya could scout, herd, trade, and raid while bringing food, water, and shelter with them. This greatly expanded the potential scale of herding economies as they could live on the open steppe for weeks or months at a time. Being out on the steppe, and increasing the area they roamed, would have stimulated an increase in the size of herds, which could have increased the land a clan or tribe claimed as pasture, and brought them into more frequent contact with each other. To avoid disputes over who had the right to be where, they would have evolved rules on where they could go, and begun to cooperate to manage their movements. The people that participated in these agreements and customs would have begun to develop their own identity as the Yamnaya culture, although obviously that is not what they would have called themselves, and conversely to treat people who did not participate in their customs as other. Hospitality, derived from the same Proto-Indo-European root word as guest and host, would have been one area of this. The single word for guest and host is taken to indicate that this was a reciprocal relationship where each had obligations to the other, expressed by an exchange of gifts. You can easily imagine two wagon trains crossing paths in the steppe and sharing a meal after trading news and goods with each other. This relationship left traces in the early literature that may have evolved out of Proto-Indo-European epic poetry. In Homer's Iliad, the opposing warriors, Glaucus and Diomedes, stop fighting and exchange their armour as gifts when Diomedes recalls that his grandfather had a guest-host relationship with Glaucus's grandfather. So... Living in mobile wagons was the key characteristic that set the Yamnaya culture apart. 
Mobile camps leave no archaeological trace, so settlements disappear from the record. A few Yamnaya settlements have been found on the edge of the steppe in what is now Ukraine, but none between the Don and the Urals, a huge area in which thousands of graves have been excavated. This is what makes Kurgans so important. We do not know how wagons reached the steppe. They could have come from Europe through the west, or it could have come from Mykop interaction with Mesopotamia, but it was in the eastern part of the Proto-Indo-European area, the Don-Volga-Ural steppe, where the Yamnaya horizon appeared, that the introduction of wagons had the greatest impact. As David Anthony writes in The Horse, the Wheel and Language, quote, the subsequent spread of the Yamnaya horizon across the Pontic-Caspian steppe probably did not happen primarily through warfare, for which there is only minimal evidence. Rather, it spread because those who shared the agreements and institutions that made high mobility possible became potential allies, and those who did not share those institutions were separated as others. The evidence suggests that families or tribes visited the cemetery areas periodically to build the graves, but did not remain in place for long, the soil does not show signs of depletion from overgrazing, and carbon dating of bones shows that there may be decades between Corgan construction. In many cases, there are groups of Corgans built at the same time, but with decades sometimes passing between construction of each group. The locations of the grave sites also provide clues as to herding patterns. Increasing herd sizes led to greater disparities of wealth between tribes, which was reflected in the grave contents. Most of the Kurgan cemeteries of the Pontic-Caspian region are in the lowest parts of the major river valleys, next to riverine forest and marshland. Later, they began to appear deep into the steppe, far from rivers. As you probably wouldn't bury your family in a strange place, this indicates that the Yamnaya people had started to regard the furthest reaches of the steppe as theirs. Botanical materials gathered and analysed from Korgans in the Kalmyk steppes, now the Republic of Kalmykia in southern Russia, show that the Yamnaya people moved seasonally between river valleys, which were always occupied to some degree, and spring and summer grazing in the steppe, travelling up to 50 kilometres from their river base. Although they left no permanent settlements behind, traces of their winter camps and camps at the Korgan cemeteries have occasionally been found. Winter camps were typically in the river valleys, where trees and reed beds could provide protection and defence, and the river ice could be broken for fishing. In other areas, no camp remains are found. In Samara region, there are remains from before the Yamnaya and a number of Yamnaya Kurgan cemeteries, but no camps have been found. If we cannot find the remains of winter camps used by Yamnaya herders in river areas where most of their cemeteries are located, it means that their herds must have been so large that they had to keep moving to new grazing. 
This can be compared to the Blackfoot Confederacy living in similar grasslands in North America, whose large herds meant that they had to move several times each winter to find forage. So, what do these korgans contain? Yamnaya comes from the Russian word yama, or pit. The graves were dug pits lined with stone. The bodies were placed on a northeast or eastern orientation, supine with raised knees, with ochre scattered around the feet, hips and head. Items in the grave include shell-tempered egg-shaped pots with the rim turned out, decorated with stamps and impressions, tanged bronze daggers, cast flat axes, and sacrificed wagons, carts, sheep, cattle, and horses. The animals were interred in a very interesting way. The animal was butchered, leaving the skull, lower legs, and hide intact. That is, with the head and legs untouched. The hide was then mounted on a wooden frame to give the appearance of a standing animal. Siberian shamans continued to treat animals in this way in rituals practiced as late as the 19th century. Some graves contained a large number of animals. A korgan in Tsar overlooking the Caspian Depression contained the skulls of 40 horses, neatly placed in two rows above the body of the man buried there. If we assume that sacrificed animals were eaten at some kind of funeral feast, 40 horses could have provided thousands of kilos of meat, suggesting a huge gathering. Wagons have been found in around 5% of Yamnaya graves, dating from around 3100 to 2200 BCE, particularly in the Kuban, now part of southern Russia just north of the North Caucasus. They were disassembled and the wheels were placed in the corners of the grave pit, as if making it into a wagon. Several complete wagons were found at the Novotitorovskaya Korgans in the Kuban, which enable us to reconstruct what they looked like. They had a fixed axle with revolving wheels. The wheels were made by connecting planks together with dowels and then cutting them into a circle about 80 centimetres or 32 inches in diameter. The bed was about 1 metre by 2.5 metres, that's 40 inches by 100 inches. There was a box seat for the driver and cross bracing. The wagon covers were made of reeds sewn onto a felt backing and painted with red and black and white stripes and curved patterns. The archaeological evidence shows that they ate a diet of meat, milk, yogurt, cheese and soups with foraged seeds and greens. They had more cattle in the west and more sheep in the east. Some cultivated grains have been found in the west, but none east of the Don. Their teeth are entirely free of caries, characteristic of foragers eating a diet free of starchy carbohydrates. Analysis of pollen from Yamnaya graves shows that they ate goosefoot and amaranth, which produce high seed yields without cultivation. From our viewpoint, we often think of agriculture as providing reliable food sources, while nomads were more precarious. But this was not the case.
Until modern times, a single poor harvest could cause famine, and spring and summer could see the previous season's crops exhausted before the new harvest had matured. Nomads, on the other hand, could move somewhere with available resources. From the steppe to North America to Pacific Islands, sedentary societies encountering pastoralist and hunter-gatherer societies consistently observed that the hunters were stronger and healthier looking than they were. The skeletons found in the Korgans show that the Yamnaya were very tall and robust, with little sign of systemic infections, although they do show signs of childhood iron deficiency, which causes bone lesions. Excessive consumption of dairy foods in childhood can cause anemia because the high phosphorus content of milk blocks iron absorption. The genetic adaptation for lactose tolerance appears to have emerged in the steppe around this time. The remains of horses butchered for food are widely found. Horses had big advantages as food livestock on the steppe, as well as as a means of transport. Sheep and cattle are originally from warmer areas, and do not have any instinct to seek food under snow. Sheep will damage their noses, pushing ice and snow around. Cows won't even look. But horses break up the snow with their hooves to reach the grass underneath. The Franciscan monk, John of Plano Carpini, who travelled to the Mongols in the 13th century, wrote that the Tatars carried neither straw nor hay nor fodder and left their horses to dig in the snow for food. There is another interesting point of comparison between cattle and horses. Genetic testing shows that cattle were frequently bred with wild aurochs and have considerable genetic diversity on the male side. The male DNA of horses, passed down unchanged on the Y chromosome, however, is so homogenous that it is possible that all modern horses are descended from a single domesticated stallion. It is not possible to entirely support the linguistic conclusions about the strongly patriarchal nature of Yamnaya society with the archaeological finds in the Korgans. The Korgans are not family graves. They were only built for significant people. Around 80% of the graves contain male skeletons, but in a few areas there are almost equal proportions of male and female burials. Children are never buried in Yamnaya Korgans. If one in five Korgan burials was a woman, then women did hold prominent positions in their society. When we get to the successor steppe cultures, we will see that they did have women leaders and even women warriors, who may have been their inspiration for the Greek Amazon myth. The Yamnaya people formed the first unified culture across the Pontic Caspian steppe, usually referred to by Western archaeologists as the Yamnaya horizon, meaning that there was a shared material culture, but not necessarily a culture in the sense we most commonly use. Slavic archaeologists call it a cultural historical community, 
which implies a somewhat looser association than calling it a culture. David Anthony calls it the Yamnaya lifestyle, which came to be shared by several cultures across the Don, Volga, Pontic, Caspian steppe areas, which then gave birth to other cultures whose movements took Indo-European languages across Eurasia. Let's just take a minute to think about what a mobile nomadic lifestyle means. What are your associations with steppe nomads? Do you think of nomadism as something that precedes agriculture? There is an idea of the steppe nomad as fearsome warriors preying on settled civilization, militarily dominant because they are fiercer and more savage than soft city dwellers, but also dependent on cities for agricultural food products, metals, and other tradable goods. Over coming episodes, we will be looking at at how true that version of steppe lifestyle is, from the Scythians to the Turks, as nomadic groups emerge from the steppe to ravage the civilizations they found in their path. But it is not how the first nomad societies of the steppe lived. Yes, there was raiding, but not warfare. They were not short of food, their remains showed that they were taller and heavier than people in settled societies, They developed their own metallurgical and transportation technologies that they spread to their neighbours. They may have been the people that developed sheep into wool-bearing animals, and they had their own textiles, leathers and furs. And nomadism was not a precursor to settled agriculture. On the contrary, it was sedentary peoples that uprooted and became mobile in response to the conditions they found themselves in. So, however we come to see subsequent nomad cultures, these cultures were independent, self-sufficient, and produced tradable goods. And this is probably a large part of why they were so successful in expanding and spreading Indo-European languages. We also tend to think of sedentary societies as complex, while nomadic pastoralists must surely be simpler. But this is not so at all. The archaeology of the Bronze Age steppe shows considerable diversity alongside the common material culture. The communities are different in scale and social, economic and political organisation, and appear to have widely differing levels of mobility. There is no evidence of political or economic centralisation with shared functional institutions, but despite this there is a shared material culture which has led archaeologists to defining the culture. The idea of small, heterogeneous, seems to go against the notion of an extensive common culture across the steppe. It would appear that the archaeological models of social complexity, which are based on the discernible units of a social framework with their different functions, which is a good match for, say, Mesopotamia, do not really fit the Bronze Age steppe. What does the genetic research show? A paper describing the results of a 2015 study led by Wolfgang Haack of the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA at the University of Adelaide is titled Massive Migration from the Steppe is a Source for Indo-European Languages in Europe and states that, quote, the late Neolithic Cordedware people from Germany traced around three-quarters of their ancestry to the Yamnaya. 
documenting a massive migration into the heartland of Europe from its eastern periphery. This steppe ancestry persisted in all sampled Central Europeans until at least 3,000 years ago, and is ubiquitous in present-day Europeans. These results provide support for the theory of a steppe origin of at least some of the Indo-European languages of Europe. End quote. The Proto-Indo-European migration into Western Europe, the first wave from Inner Eurasia, goes outside of the scope of this podcast and we will not follow them. But of course, not all of them moved west, and some of those who did, and of those who did, some mingled with people in Western Europe and then returned east. Join me next episode as we jump forward a thousand years to the successors of the Yamnaya people in the southern Ural and Kazakh steppe region, and the emergence of the Indo-Iranians, ancestors of the first of the three great steppe peoples, the Iranic peoples. Check out the website at the Russian Empire History Podcast.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Please follow or subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or somewhere else, or your favorite app, and share with your friends. You can reach me through Facebook or at hello at the Russian Empire History Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time. Thank you.